I wonder what used to be here. Maybe a bar, a machine shop, an art studio. What are they building now? A space where someone unlocks a cure for cancer. Or dreams up the next waffle sold running shoe. Or is it condos with a coffee shop? Let's face it, things are changing around here. Our little secret got out. But I'm not worried, because we don't shy away from change. We embrace it. We dig in. Use it to make things better for one more person. A wonderland is more than a beautiful place. It's more than a postcard. It's a community of people who listen to each other, learn from each other, and work together to reach new heights. I wonder what that'll look like. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM. I'm Carlos Chavez, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Delphine Crescenzo. You're listening to a uh, part two of a brand new po uh, podcast titled Profiles. Profiles is a radio project focusing on the topic of criminalization, the process from which people and behaviors are transformed into crime and criminals in our communities. What are the impacts of policies such as zero tolerance and mandatory minimum sentencing? This new series uh, aims to explore the, the effects of these ideas by offering perspectives uh, of not just those creating and, and enforcing these policies, but also those who have been on the other end of it. Our hope is to create a more thoughtful dialogue about the dilemmas that we face regarding the criminalization of people and their actions. Uh, the piece that, of audio that you just listened to during our intro was a promo for TEDx Portland earlier this spring titled Wonderland, which was uh, the theme of their last event celebrating the changes taking place in Portland that are now uh, attracting new hipsters to the city uh, from a variety of different areas uh, in, the, in, in the U.S. Um, what they didn't show you is the impact that this new development and culture has had on an, on an area of the city that's been all but forgotten. So today's program, what we're focusing on is East Portland, Outer East Portland, a.k.a. the numbers. Um, the folks that live out in East Portland, I, I would say in particular the youth out in East Portland, but it's growing, you know, more of the adults are, t are using that name nowadays. Uh, the numbers, uh, basically, you know, these are the, this is the area east of 82nd that people think uh, is Gresham. Um, it's that kind of forgotten zone, that forgotten territory um, uh, of that area of Portland that people really don't want to even know about or pay any attention to. So the numbers kind of represents like, oh, well, it's somewhere out there, you know, but it also in a way uh, represents uh, the huge population that lives out there. Um, I can't remember where it was that I read, but uh, basically the population of East Portland um, is uh, makes up the uh, same uh, uh, same headcount of basically like uh, the city of Salem. You know, so it's it's you know if it was its own um, city, it would be a, a, a you know one of the larger cities in in Oregon, um, and in a way it, it you know it kind of is. You know, it's uh, like. Uh, I remember in, in, in L.A., uh, um, the author, Luis Rodriguez, wrote a book called The Republic of East L.A. Mm -hmm. Well, you could say the same thing about uh, East Portland, the Republic of East Portland. It's just, it's a whole nother place. And uh, so in 
Delphine, why don't you go ahead and jump in here too? I want to kind of okay. talk about just the juxtaposition <clears throat> that we're talking about with that whole um, Wonderland theme. Yes. All right, so I, you know, I went to TEDx. You Portland. did. I was invited, and and to, to, and you know, this is going to sound probably contradictory, but um, we actually, my organization was actually featured in one of the films. Yeah. But one of the things that I was really shocked by, well, was first of all how the the film feature that we were in had to really kind of be watered down. Mm. Um, to, to fit the audience. And then when I got there, I realized kind of, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Yeah. Because your organization focuses on the youth of East Portland. Yep. And they didn't want that to be, you know, what used to be there or what is here now. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, to tell you the truth, it, you know, the type of work that I'm doing in East Portland is, you know, you're, it's not intended to be political, but when you're, anytime you're, you're trying to create some kind of change, anywhere you know it, it becomes a political movement or statement or what have you um my organization is not a political organization whatsoever it's a youth organization mm -hmm. and, but it uh, feels a need that is created by the lack of political leadership we could yeah. say yeah yeah or i was trying to anyways yes. yeah <laughs> yeah but um you know i'm always struck by that whole you know people think of i of portland as being this like like this hipster mecca i mean and right. you know the gentrification that's gone on out here the, the culture that the city really embraces mm -hmm. is that, you know, it's very much about bringing in uh, these young, uh, you know, I'm going to just be straight, you know, these young white folks from mm -hmm. um, outside of Portland, bringing them here uh, to work these, you know, these new kind of innovative um, types of jobs and what have you. Um, but it's very much like a like a single, um, you know, white male, female uh, demographic uh, it's not very family oriented mm -hmm. in the city. Um, and, you know, you got these condos popping up all over the place and Whole Foods and all that good stuff that we've talked about on Kebu for quite some time. And but where is the rest of Portland? We have a diversity that exists here in Portland that's truly amazing that we completely ignore. Yeah. And that's basically that's what we're talking about today. That's what we're talking about. And also we're trying to um, answer the question in that little clip video from TEDx, you know, uh, what used to be <laughs> what used to be here and uh, what are some of the things uh, that that are changing uh, based on a lot of new people coming. Um, and so one of the things that we wanted to do actually is bring the voices of leaders uh, who work in East Portland and uh, who we have spoken with um, uh, about exactly that, and and we'll start we'll start with that. So first, let's maybe introduce who they are. So Arlene Kimura is someone that we we talked to, uh, and she's co-chair of the East Portland Action Plan. Uh, we also talked to Joanne Hardesty, who uh, KBU folks probably know very well because she is a, a programmer, but also the president of the uh, NAACP Portland chapter, championing police accountability here in Portland. Uh, and we also talked to. Muse Olal, who is the chairman of the Somali American Council of Oregon. <clears throat> and so first I talked to um, Arlene Kimura and I asked her actually about um, the history of East Portland, why used to be there. So let's go to... Uh, well, hang on, hang on, hang oh, on. You Before wanted, you jump okay. into that, I want, there's one more thing I wanted to say. Okay. Um, we, and, and, you know, this is a big, you know, Delphine and I both jumped into this project with the idea of, hey, let's cover, you know, what's going on in East Portland and expo that's a big story. What it was really what is. we found out. So this is gonna probably be like a two, three part show. And the way that we're starting this show off is to focus on what is some of the history, uh, the demographics uh, of that area, what is uh, what are the struggles that are going on out there? And um, 
uh, you know, how did the people get there? So we're focusing on some of the, so Arlene's kind of focusing more on the history and some of the issues that are going on out there. Joanna's, uh, uh, you know, talking about, um, about the uh, uh, gentrification that, you know, how some of the population got there. Uh, and then also Mose is also talking about, um, you know, how is it that, uh, you know, what are some of the refugee uh, communities look like? And, and in particular, he's focusing on the Somali community. So let's go ahead and jump into that first one. Yeah, because and, and these are just only a few of the voices. Yep, That's exactly. why the story is so big. So, yes, uh, we will in the future also have other communities represented. Yes. Okay, so here is Arlene Kimura. Well, as far as I know, East Portland was for a very long time farmlands. And the major folks that settled there, in the, at least in this, in the 20th century, the early 20th century in the 30s, were Asians, principally Japanese, but some Chinese. And they were farmers. Then at the outset of the Second World War, all of those people were moved off their land. And um, a certain number of uh, people came in and bought the place, places up and made them back into farming. But I know that there was still a reasonably healthy population of, of um, Hispanic speakers who were the farm workers because that need didn't go away because somebody different owned the property. After the end of the Second World War, and a lot of people came back, there was not as much emphasis. There was more farming out toward Gresham and Boring and that, that part of, of uh, Multnomah County. And I think there still is some. But a lot of people who were um, immigrants started to come into East Portland probably in the 60s and 70s because land was cheaper there. Housing prices were cheaper. The other thing that happened was that there was a big push with people coming back from returning servicemen to build houses for them. And so the housing got developed in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And that's when it got to be a very suburban feel. Um, and I think that that has slowly um, become somewhat of a liability in the sense that uh, the people with the large lots um, are being um, asked to you know, take more density in, and while it is not a bad thing, it's different enough that, and the people who have the original lots are, are older now, mm. so the change is harder for them to deal with. And so, would could you um, uh, kind of describe for us who lives in East Portland today? What are the uh, the different folks who live there? Well, um, the different folks are, I think are really reflected in my neighborhood. There are two families who have lived there for all of their lives, 50, 60 years. Um, they've raised their children, and they still live there. Um, they're able to live there independently, although their children visit every day. Um, I have a group of um, maybe eight or nine Asian families, but they're not all the same Asian ethnicity. Mm -hmm. They're Cambodian, they're Vietnamese, <coughs> they're Chinese, they're Japanese. Um, and some of them are recent immigrants, and others are people who have uh, our third and fourth generation. There's a number of Hispanic families, um, and we have lots of Slavic speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe most of them are Ukrainian, but there, are, I think, is a Russian family there. And we are also, our, my particular street and the neighborhood generally is changing, and because we have been able to attract families with younger children, East Portland has the largest number of school-age children proportionately. Mm -hmm. 
our schools are crowded and bursting with youth with youth and and I want to capture that and say, look, this is a place you want to come back to, not the place you want to move away from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It is a fun neighborhood, and it is very enjoyable in the different things that, that you learn from each of your, your groups. And at the same time, I think it is, it is our strength if we can capitalize on it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Arlene Kimura uh, sharing with us a little bit of uh, her wisdom around the history of East Portland. Uh, and uh, we also talked to Joanne Hardesty, who um, explained to us um, the history of the African-American community uh, here in Portland uh, and how uh, a big part of the African-American population is now living in East Portland. So this is Joanne Hardesty. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and so could you talk a little bit, take us back a little bit into history and talk specifically about um, uh, the black community, because uh, you mentioned a very uh, large uh, African-American community is mm -hmm. now in East Portland. That was not always the case. So could you uh, kind of take us in a brief timeline of how things have happened and, and the issues uh, there have been created? Absolutely. And so it appears, <coughs> excuse me, as if it's a matter of public policy Every 20 years, we displaced the African-American community. And it started with Vanport after the flood. Um, and way back in Vanport, which was in the 60s, uh, uh, there was a large influx of African-Americans to work in the shipyards. Uh, and, uh, and so it was the only area in Portland that was a mixed race. So people of all different races lived in Vanport. Uh, the city of Portland, however, had sundown laws. So if you were black, you couldn't be in the city of Portland after sundown. Uh, so after Vanport flooded, you had this whole population of people that were displaced. Uh, and so they were moved into kind of the King neighborhood uh, uh, area. Uh, and that was then designated as the black community. Now, so what happens when you remove an entire population every 20 years is that they do not have political leadership. They lack political power because you can't create a majority-minority district if you keep moving the people of color around all the time. And so what we have is, again, uh, a population that has very little political representation uh, and has lost political power in the 24 years I've lived in, in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And the displacement has been intentional. Intentional, a matter of public policy. Uh, and because when I moved here 24 years ago, Inner Northeast, what you heard was, whatever you do, don't go to Inner Northeast Portland. Gangs are running rampant in Inner Northeast Portland. So, of course, I came in and got a job in Inner Northeast Portland. I got a home in Inner Northeast Portland. I walked the neighborhood night and day. Uh, and what I found was, were there people selling drugs? Sure. But people sell drugs all over the city of Portland. But were there gang members running rampant with guns, toting? No, absolutely not. What's ironic is that it's the same narrative that now I hear about the neighborhood I live in, mm -hmm. in East Portland, right? The only difference is the complexion of the people have shifted. So the complexion of the people who used to be in inner Northeast, the complexion now is in East Portland, mm -hmm. which was predominantly white, predominantly farming community, until the displacement started to happen. That was uh, Joanne Hardesty uh, giving us some history on um, how the uh, African-American community ended up there in East Portland. 
And uh, so, and we'll we'll have some more audio from each uh, from Arlene as well as Joanne to kind of go further into more of those conversations. But um, in this next one, we we want to talk about uh, some of the refugee community out in East Portland, uh, Somali community being one of the faster growing um, refugee communities out there. Um, I spoke with Mose Alal, who is a, a Somali leader out in the area, and he gives us a piece of history there. So we'll hear him in this next segment. Um, historically, in, or in Oregon, actually, the first recorded Somali uh, individual that came from Somalia who visited Oregon was 1941, who graduated from Oregon State University. But in the, in the 70s, early 70s, and also in the 80s, most of Somalis arrived here as their students. Uh, they were, the numbers were very small, but the first refugee family was settled here in Portland in 1992, February to be exact, uh, month. And also the next wave of Somali community uh, refugees who also came here in 1996. Uh, but after 2000 to 2001 is when it, when it's actually the number really escalated at the, at the exponential level. And today the estimate, the rough estimate that uh, people talk about is in, in anywhere between 15,000 plus in, in the state of Oregon. Majority of those that settled in Monona County um, Monoma counties, uh, the most of the Somali community, they were settled in East Portland, but they also some in North Portland and very few in the west side of Portland. Uh, they do have their businesses, their places of worship, and uh, and majority of them participate this the school system in the, in the, in the Portland public schools. According to the study by done by Coalition of Color, uh, Monoma Africans Monoma County that was released about three years ago, if my memory is correct. The Somali population is about uh, almost uh, two-thirds of the Africans in Monona County. Uh, they also was, a, according to Portland Public Schools recent report, is the third most spoken language in Portland uh, Public Schools as we speak. Uh, so they, the culture and the quantities are intermingled in the East Portland, but unfortunately it's a, is a, is a community, community of color that's very silent because of lack of advocacy and, uh, and the people that are willing to represent their, their community. And that is one of the biggest challenges that uh, making a lot of success and also given, getting opportunities difficult for the Somali community in East Portland and also in Oregon overall. Now, is, is, is the refugee status one of the major reasons or is that one of the major influxes of yeah. the Somali Really? Yes, it's Somalia. That of course, the civil war of 1991 uh, created a lot of refugees. That's why we had 92, the first wave of Somali community families arrive in Oregon. Uh, but majority of those kids that are coming today, they were born uh, and raised in a, in a refugee camp. But also some of those earlier ones also have been through the war war, war zone, and even later they're the one that left after after any place that have a civil war going on. The, the family runs away and the kids are exposed to a lot of violence and a lot of uh, bodies and, and weaponry that uh, are really, you don't expect a child to be exposed in their life, early on in their life. So that was Masa Elal uh, speaking on just some of the history and a little bit of the di diaspora of um, the Somali community in East Portland. And, you know, we're focusing on just one of the rep refugee populations um, in East Portland. There are many um uh, the much of the slavic community is is uh out you know has landed in east portland because of re refugee status as well as uh, the vietnamese community 
there, there's quite a few. Um, uh, but we want to, in this next segment, we want to kind of jump into kind of what are some of those struggles that these communities are faced with, um, you know, now that they are in uh, the East Portland area. Uh, so we'll continue on with Mose here in this next segment, uh, talking about what uh, the Somali communities face with. So now they get here. I mean, what is the what is that transition like? I mean, the, so my understanding is that the refugee camps are very horrendous. Um, explain a little bit about what that whole environment was. I mean, you you've explained a little bit about, about what that looks like, but what what are you know what do the refugee camps look like, and what does that transition look like for the Somali community coming, you know, from there to here, and then what does their experience look like as they get here? Uh, refugee camp is one of the most horrible places. You don't want to wish anybody that you, you care about to ever become a refugee. Becoming a refugee means you go to another country that you don't, you're not part of that, and end up into a refugee camp, and the United Nations become your uh, sponsor. Literally, they take care of you, but they give you food, uh, shelter, and basic medications, and pretty much nothing else. The family system breaks down. It creates a lot of stress. Uh, you literally have no status. You're not citizen of anybody. Even though you were born in that country, let's say a lot of Somali kids were born in Kenya, they're not Kenyan nationals. They are actually, they, according to the United Nations, they still consider the national of origin, which is Somalia. And until a nation accepts it, which graciously the United States have accepted a lot of Somali refugees, then that's the biggest opportunity to resettle new life and actually obtain a status. And that's how most of them and, and Somali community came to Oregon as a refugee and li started life in, in Oregon. So, when, oh, go ahead. When they first arrived, there's the agencies that actually help them uh, pick them from the airport and help them resettle. Uh, basically, they started their first apartment, their first meal, they uh, end up getting their social security, getting their, uh, their IDs, anything that basically starts to start life. And after that, they've been transitioned to another organization that would try give them uh, uh, some sort of uh, skills to, to, to make a living. Uh, and that, from that day you come in to that point, you only have eight months for the government to help you, uh, pay you enough to barely pay your apartments and, 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 and uh, anything else. There isn't much left after that that's being care of. And unfortunately, uh, if you find a job, if you find two months after you come to this country, if you find a job, which means you're going to be off uh, the government's uh, support. And when you come here and you have no language skills, the jobs that you're most likely going to find is, is, is uh, not that I'm belittling any job, it has, has, has a worth and respect, but you're going to end up uh, working in a hotel, you know, to flip in the, the mattresses or working in a, in a burger joint, flipping the burger, or maybe, maybe you're working in a dishwashing job with no language skills pretty much you kind of isolate it there and there's nothing uh, more to move forward so that is the biggest dilemma they have most of the community Somali community and that's where they fall over one majority of them you have to realize that reselling agencies uh, if they f help you find a job early on there are also incentives of the remaining money that that left that doesn't go back to the government some of it stays with the reselling agencies and that's another challenge and something we're continually trying to work with and say, help this person, at least have a eight months they have 
learn enough language skills so they can fit for themselves to find the better opportunities out there. So that was uh, Mose Olal talking about um, some of the challenges, um, well, and really the very um, uh, difficult process of actually being a refugee and, and, and being resettled and kind of adapt, uh, adapting to American culture, um, and also some of the specific challenges of the community now that they are established in East Portland. Um, and so uh, um, one of the things that I spoke with Joanne Hardesty about a lot as far as uh, some of the struggles uh, uh, is the struggle of the youth and especially the criminalization of youth and how does that happen in East Portland. So um, here's Joanne uh, Hardesty talking a little bit about that. Every day you can hear the mayor, Charlie Hales, or the police chief talk about this enhanced gang violence mm-hmm. and gang violence is running rampant. And when you hear them say that, what you think is black and brown boys between the ages of 14 and 24 years old, because that is the picture that has been painted uh, by, our, uh, by our police department to the general public. But when you look at the facts of who actually is prosecuted for gun crimes, they're overwhelmingly white, mm-hmm. they're overwhelmingly male, and they overwhelmingly have no connection to communities of color, right? But when the police start uh, demanding more money because gangs are running rampant, the picture they paint is that the kids of color are running rampant. So what that does to our youth is it makes them uh, guilty until proven innocent. And so if you see three or four African-American youth in the neighborhood, right away the gang enforcement unit is stopping them, questioning them, searching them, demanding to know where they're going, why they're going. Well, they're being kids. Mm -hmm. They're in their neighborhood. Why can't they hang out in their neighborhood without threat uh, from law enforcement? In my neighborhood, the police act like they are in a John Wayne movie. They come through flying 80 miles an hour. You see lots of police cars, sirens blasting, people jumping out of the way because they're like, what is going on? And so they act like it's the Wild West in East Portland, and they get to do what they want. And the problem is there's so many police agencies in East Portland. You've got the Multnomah County Gang Enforcement Unit. You've got the City of Portland Gang Enforcement Unit. You've got the Gresham, uh, Multnomah County uh, 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 Joint Interdiction Task Force. So you've got so many policing agencies who are telling the narrative of these aggressive, dangerous African-American and Latino youth operating in East Portland so that they can get more money, so they can buy more weapons, so they can, they can drive faster in our neighborhood, right? The bottom line is that we're criminalizing behavior uh, for youth, and we started in the schools. We have uh, school resource officers in elementary schools. When I find out that they are arresting 10- and 12-year-old girls in school for a fight that happened on a school ground, we should all be appalled by that because what we're doing by putting police in elementary schools is starting criminalizing youth in elementary school. When I was a kid in elementary school, you could do anything in elementary school, and it was a school crime, right? Mm -hmm. And so they called your parents. They brought your parents into the office. They suspended you. But it was a school problem. It was not a law enforcement problem. So when you start getting kids interacting with police in elementary school, you are exacerbating the school-to-prison pipeline in a way that uh, that 
is going to be mind-boggling 20 years from now because we already see the impact. We got 12-year-olds being arrested on school grounds. That's appalling. That shouldn't happen in any uh, society, right? Mm-hmm. And But when it's our kids, when it's kids of color, there's silence. There's silence from elected leaders. There's silence from school leaders. There's silence in the community. And we have to stand up and say that is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing it to the kids in Wilson, you shouldn't be doing it to the kids uh, uh, in, in uh, Gresham. Mm-hmm. That was Joanne Hardesty, and you are listening to KBOO Portland. I'm Delphine Crescenzo. I'm here with Carlos Chavez, and we are hosting this morning Profiles, um, a uh, new uh, KBOO, brand new KBOO podcast uh, that is focusing on the topic of criminalization um, and the impact that policies like zero tolerance, etc., are having on our community. And this morning, uh, we are playing audio um, that we collected. Uh, doing interviews with uh, some uh, um, amazing leaders in the East Portland neighborhood, including Muse Olol, chairman of the Somali American Council of Oregon, Joanne Hardesty, uh, president of the Portland chapter of the NAACP, and Arlene Kimura, co-chair of the East Portland Action Plan. Uh, and we are going to continue on this conversation around some of the, the challenges um, that communities are facing. And we're going to go back to Joanne, uh, who has been doing a lot of work around uh, police accountability and, um, and police reform in the city. And here she is talking about um, how youth are targeted uh, uh, by the police. Um, so this is Joanne Hardesty. I can tell you that even in my own neighborhood, we do... Uh, the uh, 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 official uh, uh, night out event in Mm -hmm. August. Uh, And the police come, right? And because it's the neighborhood, you know, you get to to know who your neighborhood police officer is. And so uh, those police officers have come to my neighborhood when we're having our picnic and we're out hanging out with our neighbors and said to my neighbors, when you see people you don't know, call the police, Right. There are gangs moving into your neighborhood. Max is bringing crime to your community. I'm sitting there with my neighbors, primarily white, primarily retired. They're horrified. Oh, my gosh, what should we do? And I said to this officer, I said, well, how do you expect them to know all 10,000 people who have just moved into East Portland, who've been displaced out of inner Northeast Portland? How do you expect them to know all 10,000? And wouldn't it be better if you tell them to bake a pie and take it next door when you see somebody that you don't know and welcome them to the neighborhood? And so if they would do this in my neighborhood, knowing I live there, knowing I would be there to push back on this narrative, it made me wonder how many other neighborhood meetings are they going to telling this exact same story, right? Mm -hmm. And then you ask why. Well, why is we want more money. We want more officers. We want more resources, right? That's the why. Mm -hmm. And so if you tell my white, retired, scared homeowners that crime is coming to your neighborhood and you need to call the city council so that we can get more policing services to protect you, then that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're creating, right? And so the police... Is, uh, is painting a picture of crime being black and brown yeah. and, and primarily male. 
Um, and so what they're trying to do to the community is to put make fear the factor. And what we learn about fear, just like after 9-11, is if you can keep people in a state of fear, they won't ask the hard questions. Well, if crime is that bad and we got that many gangs, how come you're not arresting and prosecuting that many gang members, mm-hmm. right? Because your numbers of prosecutions are really low as compared to who you stop. Mm-hmm. And so why are you stopping the same kids over and over and over again when you know that these kids are doing nothing but being kids hanging out in their own neighborhood, right? And so we, what we've created are kids that are angry, quite frankly. They're angry. They're mad. They're ticked off, right? And they understand that they are being treated unjustly, unfairly, right? And they're being treated based on a stereotype that has absolutely nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to young people, they tell me right away, right? I mean, because I do a lot of Know Your Rights trainings, Mm -hmm. and young people, they will tell you in a heartbeat, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, any time we go to the mall, this is what our experience is, right? And so, but they don't have enough places to have that conversation, right? Because, you know, most of the time, especially kids of color, if you go home and say, the police stopped me, my mom would be, well, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Because that's that's a parent's mindset. Yeah. Right. Well, of course, they wouldn't stop you if you didn't do anything wrong. Right. Well, but they don't know that these these kids are experiencing targeted harassment behavior by people who are sworn to protect and serve them. And who do not live in the community and at don't, all. Don't live in a community. Don't know the people who live in a community. Don't know the community norms and are so arrogant. They don't want to know yeah. the community norms. Yeah. So, and that was uh, that was Delphine talking with uh, Joanne Hardesty about you know the targeting uh, the the criminalization of youth really in East Portland, that, which is really kind of at the heart of the subject matter yeah. that we that we're talking about with this new um, podcast that we're putting that we're you know that we're doing. Um, the next segment that we're going to kind of go into, or the next section that we're going to go into, deals with. You know a little bit more of that gentrification scenario, but also just dis- displacement, because not only is is uh, have people been gentrified from you know uh, North Portland out to out to the numbers, you know you folks from the numbers are also being displaced. Uh, I should say from East Portland. <laughs> I should yes. shouldn't even say the numbers, <laughs> but uh, I just got you know it's just part of the dialogue when I talk to the youth that I work with out there. Anyways, um, so we'll jump into this next one with Arlene uh, talking about displacement. Um, but as you touched on a little bit, there's been unfortunately um, kind of a, um, a gentrification process that has happened in North Portland that has driven a lot of families to East Portland. But now the same process of gentrification is also taking place in East Portland. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Well, what it really looks like for most people is that they are being evicted with no cause. Yeah. And um, told to find someplace else to live. And they may be given 60, 90 days, but that still for a lot of families in East Portland means that they don't get their first and last month deposit back. So they basically end up either living with relatives or being homeless for about a six-week period until they get that money back. Um, I personally think that there are things that our regulations can do to help that along. I don't, I'm not against the gentrification. What I'm against is forcing people out mm-hmm. because they, they can't afford to live there. And, you know, obviously we've got to raise the, the, the family wage jobs. We've got to raise opportunities for education so that even though the area gentrifies, the people who are here 
and want to stay here can. Mm-hmm. And right now, that's that's a real f- delicate balance, and we, I think we're falling off the other side and forcing people out, and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the involuntary displacement um, process that the East Portland Action Plan did had a whole list of things that that regulations could help, and part of it is that we have to get Salem to agree to do some of that mm-hmm. stuff too. Yeah. And in just a minute, we'll talk about that, about the exact steps that can be taken to help, to help that. But I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about also, as you say, uh, the largest number of school-aged children in East Portland. So how are the youth uh, being affected by the changes that are taking place in the neighborhood? They are actually being forced to move. And um, educators have told me, and my mother is also a teacher, so she, you know, she did tell me that without consistency of children knowing that they're going to be in this class till the end of the year and that next year they're going to see the same kids. The learning curve is just multiplied by the difficulty. There's also no place for them to do their homework. Mm. There's no consistent way they can get help doing their homework. We have some um, programs like the Sun School that help a little bit, but everybody is not enrolled in Sun Schools. Um, the other thing is there's not enough of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realize it's a budgetary issue. And I also want to say that I think our East Portland school districts have done the very best they can with with addressing that and not throwing up their hands and saying, well, these kids are homeless, so there's no point in giving them an education. I think that our schools have had a very decent graduation rate in spite of the fact that those they know that a good percentage of their population um, is unfortunately either homeless or teetering. And the test scores are reflected in the fact that the kids are really doing better because consistency is really going to be how children learn the best. They feel comfort, and they can they can be ready to learn without that tension of, well, maybe tomorrow they won't be here. This is Arlene Kimura talking uh, with myself um, about... Um, Uh, gentrification and what comes with it, which is the displacement of communities and then what kind of ensues with that. And uh, she's spoken most specifically about um, uh, the youth and and their um, uh, uh, education uh, and how this is disturbed, uh, but also the the community connections are disturbed when displacement happens as a result of gentrification. And she does ask the question, does one have to come with the other? Uh, Joanne Uh, believes that the two are very intertwined. And here's Joanne Hardesty actually talking about the displacement of the black community specifically. Well, uh, I think it's the same, gentrification and displacement, because Mm -hmm. when gentrification happens, you displace populations of people. And so I think that the terms are interconnected. I think what, uh, what we know about East Portland is East Portland wasn't ready for this influx of all these people of color. All of a sudden, the school districts have 52 languages that are being spoken in their schools, and they're like, what the heck? You know, we weren't, we, we weren't prepared for this at all. Uh, and what we have are people who don't feel like they have any political representation at all, right? So if you look at the city council, it does not reflect the people who live in the city of Portland. Mm-hmm. Look at the Multnomah County Commission, it does not reflect the people who live in the city of Portland. Look at the legislative body, it does not reflect 
reflect the people who live in the city of Portland, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to ask yourself, why? Well, if we continue to displace populations that can't collectively build political power, we continue to make sure that we take away their ability to, for self-governance, for self-representation, and for advocacy for the things that their communities care about. Coming up and go... This was uh, Joanne Hardesty talking about um, the displacement of the black community. Um, and um, uh, uh, I think that her point that gentrification and displacement are the same um, uh, is very important to think about uh, because uh, as we open the show uh, today with that TEDx little piece that was kind of um, uh, making the suggestions that in fact uh, when things change it's always good and positive and we can't think about we used to be there but not really in critical way we should just focus on what next is coming uh, then, then this piece both from Arlene, uh, uh, but also from Joanne, those two pieces we just listened to, uh, really help us um, reflect more deeply as to, uh, well, the real implications. Yeah, the fragmentation, that you know, comes. that's going on out there. Yeah. Um, we want to, so at this point, you know, we'd like to kind of transition. Um, you know, Delphine and I are always, you know, we want to highlight and focus, you know, attention on, you know, what are the issues that folks are going through, but, you know, we never want to do that without offering, you know, some type of solution. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are some answers? What are some ways that we can uh, that we can create some change, that we can bring some attention to what's going on? But not only, you know, just focus on kind of some of the negative uh, aspects of what's going on, but, um, you know, how do we focus on, you know, on some of the positive things that, that you know, and celebrate things like diversity out there in East Portland? Yeah, and also celebrate the things that people are doing on an everyday basis. People like Arlene and Joanne and, and Mose, who are actually uh, uh, taking steps every day uh, to support the community, try to um, uh, uh, diminish some of the barriers and challenges that community face, but also are very staunch advocates for their community to city councils and, and the county councils and, and all of that. So, um you know, Arlene had amazing solutions, uh, and um, she uh, one of her solution was actually around um, not translating uh, <laughs> things. So um, we were going to uh, play a clip from her, but uh, because of time, we'll skip that clip. But I'll just talk a little bit about what she said. Um, and when I asked her what is you know one of the very concrete steps that the city could take, she said, "Stop translating every." paperwork that you put out into languages because if English speakers don't read those then you can just go ahead and assume that uh, that people who speak other languages are not going to read them also based on the fact that they use very complicated language that's convoluted that already English speakers are unable to uh, really fully comprehend so what do you assume and then think that that's the only step that needs to be taken in order to reach a community well another in, in another segment of the interview that you did with Arlene that we didn't have as one of our tracks. Um, she also points out how important it is to understand the communities, you know, each of the different cultures that are there. Right. Um, there's no like one size fits all package that you can apply in any particular community. Uh, and that has to do with, you know, just the districts. Uh, 
let alone you know, you know the the different cultures within that district you know and you know the latino community you know the the slavic community um you know sunday is very much like a family day a right. very much of like you know church is very much a, a big part of that uh world and and you know that can't be a day that you're trying to approach these or, or you know if you are then maybe you need to be at the church doing it right. or what have you so um so she talks about how it important it is to understand the communities are you know that you're that you're engaging with and i mean really it it, it needs to come from inside out right. as opposed to you know folks trying to do these broad sweeping um you know policies um that that uh, a lot of times don't really have any impact yeah and they just perpetuate also um this idea that uh there's you know like specific ways or normal ways right between quotation marks which you can't see me do but uh, normal ways of communicating and that's the official flyer that is posted in your neighborhood right but it really is not like and i think that um uh, uh arlene is really pushing for uh the city to actually be at the grassroots within the communities and understand what is culturally appropriate way of communicating uh, with everybody. If your intention really is to make sure people are really informed and aware. Well, and, and one other thing I wanted to mention that, which I meant to mention earlier on, I probably should have mentioned right in the beginning um, so that you can have an understanding of what we're talking about. As far as this large diverse population, I did mention the size of, of the population out there, but you know, we're talking about it. East Portland, especially, I mean, just the school, David Douglas High School alone, um, they've got over 3,200 kids there, and they're speaking over 50 different languages yeah. at that school. Uh, they're coming from all over the planet, wow. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, the diversity in that area is extreme. It is the most diverse place in Portland, mm -hmm. period, in Oregon, yeah. in Oregon. So, you know, that's what we're talking about there. And so, um, anyways, we, we want to kind of jump into to one last segment that we have with Joanne. Yeah, sure, who actually talks about some of the solutions um, that she sees, uh, uh, both individuals but also um, uh, uh, officials uh, can do uh, in order to, uh, to help, um, you know, uh, turn this gentrification process into uh, something that is different, uh, something that has community uh, cohesiveness and success in mind. Um, uh, and that would include all the people that are already in the community, not a made up community. So here's Joanne Hardesty with some solutions for us. Well, actually, this is the part of the conversation where we actually try to talk a little bit about uh, some of the responsibilities <coughs> of the city uh, to uh, our youth and the youth of color that are uh, currently falling prey to the system. So what are some of the concrete steps that um, can be taken by the city to stop uh, disenfranchising this youth uh, and also any suggestions for mm -hmm. residents also? Yes, well, I'll do the resident suggestions first. Um, I encourage every community member, when they see a young person being stopped, to stop and bear witness, right? And you don't have to do what I do. I always bring my cell phone or my iPad, and I take pictures because you never know when these situations will get out of control. Uh, and I do it to keep both the youth safe as well as to keep everybody else safe because the police are going to act differently when they know the community is watching. Mm -hmm. And so it's important that we as community members, whenever we see someone being stopped, that we stop and we bear witness. And you know what happens? Other people stop. All of a sudden there's a crowd. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pictures. And the police... Uh, 
they act really well when the whole community is watching. And so I encourage people to do that. Now, as far as the city is concerned, uh, this particular mayor, Charlie Harrell, put together the Black Male Initiative uh, as part of this national effort that was started by the White House Obama. Uh, and they have 1.5 staff person, right? Each city office has an office of equity, right? So somebody's responsible for addressing the inequality that exists within our city. Um, They're not fixing what's broken, right? And having 1.5 staff people responsible for the systemic racism that's built into every structure in the city of Portland is pretty ludicrous and insulting to people of color, right? Mm -hmm. So what we really need to do is be real about where we are and what we need to do to change uh, where we are, right? What we really need to do is go to the communities most impacted uh, by these disparities and work with them to develop the solution. Now, I know Coalition of Communities of Color, they have book for each community with direct represent, uh, recommendations mm-hmm. of what changes, what policy changes need to be made to address each individual community of color. Uh, I know the state of Black Oregon has the exact same thing, very specific recommendations that they've made to mm. every policymaker to say these are the things that we need to do if we're going to have any impact on addressing the inequities in our system. I think the problem with Portland is that we believe we are liberal, Mm -hmm. we believe we're progressive, and we're so arrogant, we're not willing to address Mm -hmm. that systemically, no matter where you look, the social determinants of health, people of color have not abode well in Oregon ever, and they never have. And so for the 30 years that we've collected data, Native Americans have been at the very bottom. African Americans have been right on top of them, and Latino Americans are right on top of them. And so, and it hasn't changed in 30 years of progressive leadership. Mm-hmm. And so, if that's progressive leadership, I want some other kind of leadership. Yeah, I agree. And also, how insulting to know that uh, uh, communities of colors have put forth the effort to actually name solutions uh, uh, and create the resources for uh, the, the city to look at. Absolutely. And that has been ignored. And it's as been well. ignored, yes. And you know, what's interesting is because before that, what the city, what the policymakers and the powers that be would say is, oh, it's just anecdotal information. You don't have enough facts, you know. And so communities of color got smart. They went mm-hmm. to Portland State University. They got certified smart people to collect the data. They got certified smart people to do the analysis. And then they developed these very pretty policy books that look just like the policy books that the fancy uh, uh, firms would develop for the city of Portland, right? And so they, they don't say that anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. now communities said, okay, uh, we're just telling you what we see, what we hear, what we experience in our community. That's not good enough. Okay, here's the documentation. Do you know every government was shocked by the data? Hmm. Shocked when the, when the communities coalition of communities of color put that data forward? They were all shocked. And here we are 3 4 years later and they don't even talk about it anymore. They don't even mention it anymore, right? So the shock didn't last long and the shock didn't lead to action, right? And so it's up to us communities of color to remind them that we've done the work for you. All you have to do is find the political courage to implement it. Mm. Wow. Joanne, thank you so much for all the wisdom and for all the work you do in the community. It is my pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) 
how much wisdom Joanne Hardesty has. Um, how lucky uh, was I to sit with her and with Arlene Kimura, uh and Carla Satwin Musa Alol, and they all shared a lot of um, uh, their wisdom um, from from uh, the community they live in. Uh, but that piece on solutions uh, for me was very uh, profound uh, uh, because as you know, Joanne explained a lot of people have put a lot of efforts into um, uh, trying to um, uh, push for solutions. But within the community itself, there's also, as Joanne says, a lot of folks that are just not waiting uh, for um, the city or anybody else to uh, take charge. Uh, and a lot of people are doing uh, different things. Uh, Arlene uh, herself is doing something that's really amazing. And I would encourage you to contact her if you are a person of color that owns a business in East Portland. She is um, putting together a, um, um, a roster of um, uh, of information and uh, contact information for all businesses of color in East Portland as one of the ways to um, actually make sure that uh, money stays within the community and um, uh, that uh, businesses of color are also um, uh, pushed to the forefront like they deserved, um, like any other of the nice little condo coffee shops <laughs> that, that, that we see popping up uh, other places. Uh, but also one of the things that Arlene talked about, which I really uh, liked, was how individuals also are taking action. So, for example, she spoke about a police officer who is uh, taking on his own time to put together classes in um, uh, non-English uh, languages uh, to try to help some of the newcomers who might not be uh, English speakers actually learn how to drive uh, because he saw that, uh, you know, he was pulling over lots of people and, you know, maybe giving them tickets, whatever, and then uh, they will not show up at the court system. And it was just a big waste of time and resources. So that's one of the things that that has been done. Anything else, Carlos, that you want to mention around solutions? As far as solutions, yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, let's celebrate the diversity that right. we have yeah. out there in East Portland. You know, and, and you know, like you mentioned with the businesses, you know, why can't that be trendy? Why can't that be a cool thing like mm -hmm. everything else? You know, we have, uh, you know, a variety of different locations um, um, that are very unique to you know to portland um culturally and uh and let's celebrate that let's go check those places out let's let's support those those businesses um let's also support you know uh, the community action that's been going on out there and so you know i want to i want to touch once again on um you know the work that east portland action plan is doing uh east portland neighborhood office is doing mm -hmm. uh they're doing extremely important work out there it's a very good group of folks uh, that are involved, it's very much a diverse uh, uh, group of folks uh, in the mix and um, and really kind of uh, doing that work inside out, you know, uh, from the inside out, which is where it needs to happen. Um, creating community events, community, yeah. um, uh, uh, even getting uh, funding out to the community so that they can take on projects. Uh, you know, my organization has been able to tap into that, which has been, you know, amazing. We were, mm -hmm. were able to do a, a, an art show, we were able to do uh, a couple of breakdance jams, actually like three of them now, mm -hmm. uh, which and it's all there. It's all, you know, celebrating, you know, diversity, community and uh, and just having fun, you know. 
So, um, but I also wanted to mention one last thing was the the uh, Division Midway Alliance is a Festival of Nations, which yeah. basically that's what that's about, celebrating you know the businesses, the people, the uh, the activities that are going on out there in East Portland. That'll be happening in in September. So okay. you know, look for that and come out and celebrate with us. And so if you want to uh, send us any comments, uh, you can email us at profiles at kboo.org, any comments if you'd like to be uh, introduced. And uh, you've been listening to Profiles, a new podcast being brought to you by KBOO on KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. I'm Delphine Crescenzo with Carlos Chavez. And um, uh, all of the uh, today's uh, audio plus the first episode is also on the KBOO's webpage, kboo.fm slash programs slash profiles so check that link uh, for extended interviews and newer segments uh, created by also our, our some of our radio journalist students at McLaren Youth Correctional uh, Facility yeah and you know we're going to be adding extended you know those extended interviews not only from this program but you know as well as a whole bunch of others so just stay tuned we got a lot of good stuff coming there yeah um, thank you very much and I want to thank you all for listening thanks a lot thank you Carlos all right, bye-bye 